Welcome to another episode of the My Creative District podcast, where we discuss how to channel your creative power into building the life you want, building the business you want, and making the impact you want. We believe creatives can live out a passionate and fulfilled life when they completely embrace their unique design and purpose. Want to turn your passion into profit? Stay tuned to hear from industry professionals, paradigm shifters, and world changers who have done just that and live it every day. This is the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. Hey guys, today I am interviewing Michael Roderick and we will be discussing how he built a referable brand that consistently got him connected with a ton of people that helped him build his business. But before we begin, I want to remind you that my creative district and worldwide dance challenge has just reopened enrollment into the worldwide dance Academy. If you know anyone that would be interested in learning how to dance from instructors across the world, have them visit worldwide dance challenge.com slash Academy to learn more. Michael, it is a pleasure to have you on the show, brother. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am super excited to get into this discussion about your, you know, your keyword, the referability, you know, so many people underestimate the value of connecting with people. I think especially as creatives, we constantly are thinking that we need to be the best at what we do, which is, is super important. You always want to be good at what you do, but we undervalue like connections and how our network really does amplify you know, our platform. And so super excited to get into that discussion with you. You know, before we get into that, I just want to build a little bit of context. So let me know like a little bit of, you know, your background, who you've done some work with, and then we'll go back to talk about how you got there. But what are some of your things that you've worked on that people might recognize? Sure, sure. Uh, so I uh, was a Broadway producer on a number on a number of projects. I worked on uh, American Idiot. Uh, I worked on the Scottsboro Boys. There was an off-Broadway show uh, by Paul Scott Goodman, who wrote Bright Lights, Big City, called Rooms that I also worked on. And I was also behind the scenes on a lot of things where I would not necessarily get have my name on the project, but I would help raise money or introduce other producers uh, to each other. So I introduced some of the main producers to each other on Vanya, Sonia, Masha, and Spike. Uh, when that happened, introduced a number of people during uh, Catch Me If You Can. Also raised some money for the Alan Cumming version of Goddish Play. Lots of different projects on the uh, on the Broadway side. Yeah, and and when we were when we were discussing you know that earlier, it was it was really impressive to me to to you know I'm not a big Broadway guy so to speak. But those are things that I even know the names of. So yeah. <laughs> I, I realized that I was like, okay. And again, that all came from your, this referability that we're going to talk about. Let's take it back in context. What was the eight to 10 year old version of Michael Roderick's life like? Like how was growing <laughs> up for you uh, in the early stages? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's such a fascinating question. It's one that you don't get very often, right? Going that far back, I, I've certainly had people ask about high school. I've certainly had people <laughs> ask about college, but yeah, if you go back to like eight to ten. I was the creative kid. I was the kid who um, sometimes got in trouble because I was turning my crayons into spaceships rather than sort of paying attention <laughs> That's to awesome. what was, you know, sort of what was going on. I also was always the performer of the crowd. So I remember very distinctly when my my church at the time 
was doing some kind of like yard sale type of thing in the church uh, in the in the church basement. They had a band. I actually got up without any sort of you know provocation and sang with the band "Great Balls of Fire," uh, <laughs> and just like and I just knew it, and I was just sort of able to like rattle it off. I was always that kid who kind of enjoyed the aspect of performance and creativity. I was always kind of living in my own world. Um, I, like I distinctly remember, you know, when you had your bike and you used to put the trading card in the bike and it made it sound like you had a, yeah. you had like a motorcycle. Yeah. I would, you know, I would do that and be like riding in the, you know, the parking lot next to, next to our house. And I'm originally from Rhode Island. I was uh, living in Providence and there was like this parking lot right next to my house where the hostess factory was. And me and my friends used to imagine that, you know, we were, you know, we were like these secret spies, like going over to the hostess factory and like checking and seeing like if the villains were there. So yeah, I was always that like creative kind of performative uh, kid. <laughs> the baseball card thing, I may or may not have completely destroyed a Ken Griffey Jr. Don Russ rookie card doing that. <laughs> I might never, ever forgive myself for that. So I was totally the kid that was doing that as well. So yep. now, now you said that you, you got up and kind of were the performance kid. I'm curious, did that ever like get in the way at school? Like, did you get reprimanded for that? ever uh oh yeah i i don't think i've ever told this story so th this is this is a fun one i was always the one to sort of like come up with like the the random response <laughs> to uh <laughs> to you know questions yeah and i i very distinctly remember we were in i think it was like third or fourth grade and my teacher comes up at the front of the room and says, today we're going to be working on Valentine's cards. And she said it in this like really like chipper way. And the, you know, the, the rest of the class was like, you know, Oh, and I went, whoop -de -doo! <laughs> I so much trouble. And I didn't even realize like how sarcastic it sounded. Right. Like I was actually like legitimately excited about the fact that we were doing it. But uh, yes, that aspect of sort of being performative, it wasn't that I was like in time out necessarily. Like I wasn't the like super disruptive kid, but I was the one who uh, would be, you know, very performative in the ways that I would sort of explain things or do things. I distinctly remember kids asking me when we would do like round robin reading. I distinctly remember kids like raising their hand and asking the teacher if I would read um, oh, because I okay. always would read like with like super expression yeah, <laughs> and all those types of things. A lot of times when, you know, you're a performer and you do things that are classified as unnormal, right? Or a little mm -hmm. different or a little out of the box. Like how did that impact you interacting with like kids at, at school? Did that ever like cause you to be kind of like, cast to the side because you were different or how did that impact that dynamic as i sort of think back to it i certainly had instances in which like i was not part of the cool kids club right like i was you know um but the interesting thing about it was i always and this happened in high school as well like i always kind of found my crowd so sure. even though i wasn't necessarily like part of like the inner circle let's just say i was i always sort of had a community around i was always sort of making like the tight-knit group of friends as opposed to being the overly popular kid except for one time in high school there was one time in high school where i became the kid that everybody wanted to talk to or wanted to you know, uh, see, because when we were doing, I think it was senior year, there was a fashion show. 
I had been taking dance for a number of years. I've been taking jazz dance. The fashion show uh, coordinator actually asked me to put together a dance, choreograph a dance to Right Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy because of all the like catwalk references. Nice, <laughs> nice. And, and I choreographed a dance uh, to the entire song and I performed that at the fashion show. And I really got into it and, you know, did my little turn on the catwalk and all the things. And uh, at the end of that experience, there were so many kids who like, they, they just like, they wanted me to do it again. They wanted me to do it at other dances. They like, it, it eventually even came to a point where uh, towards the end of the year, I was raising money for our school's uh, English department and I was putting together a battle of the bands. I, I love to refer to this as the night I beat George Lucas. This was the nice. same night that they were going to re-release Return of the Jedi. Oh, nice. And, yeah. Basically, we thought, well, nobody's going to come to this thing. And it was probably like a couple weeks out when we had found out about it. But I then said that if people bought a ticket, I would do the I'm Too Sexy dance at the end of the night. There you go. <laughs> so there you go. We Leverage. The, we sold out the entire house uh, you know, for that particular uh, Battle of the Bands. So I sang with my band. Uh, you know, I was the headliner. I sang with my band. And then at the end, I did the I'm Too Sexy dance for the, that entire crowd. You know, and I, I, I can't say I ever had that big moment in high school. I was, you know, the band geek kind of the kid that was in the off crowd but I always do I do feel like there is a lot of times there's that moment where people that are on the creative side that don't tick like everybody else that don't seem to see the world as everybody else sees them they have that at least one moment in their life where that skill set or that bright light as you were shines and everybody then finally sees it right they don't see it yeah. on the social awkwardness they don't see it in you know why are you spending time playing music and not playing sports right or why are yep. you dancing to you know shake my little tush on the catwalk while <laughs> we're all like at basketball practice i think that's the part of us that really adds some flavor to the world because there's that moment where all the weirdness starts to make sense yep all the weirdness yep. like starts to show its face in a light that nobody could see, right? Did the fact that you were, you know, not necessarily in the in crowd, did that ever affect you in any way? Did it ever, you know, some people are super resilient to it. Some people don't care. Some people it like causes them deep issues, like even further on in life. So how did that impact you um, during that season of your life? I think we always have moments in which we kind of feel left out, right? Like we always have moments where we, we feel like we're not part of a, you know, part of a particular circle or, you know, uh, siloed, if you will, or, you know, any of those types of things. And, you know, when I look back and I sort of look at sort of the trajectory of my life, I think that all of the work that I've done has always been about this aspect of making sure that other people don't feel alone because I know what it's like to feel alone. Like, I know what it's like to sort of have that, you know, aspect of, you know, not necessarily feeling like you belong or not necessarily feeling like you're, you should be in the room and like all of those different types of things. And those were part, you know, that, that was part of kind of my life. I mean, even, you know, from a dance standpoint, I was the only boy who ever chose to dance at the dance studio that I danced at. So I distinctly remember going to the dance recitals and the person who would sort of in charge would like find a, a, a gel room 
where all the, you know, where all the lights were. And that would be my changing room because, you know, there were the massive rooms with all the girls, right? You might have um, arguably yeah. been one of the smart kids then at that moment, dancing with a bunch of girls and you're the only guy, brother. That's, this, that's just increasing the odds. You know, I mean, that's the thing, right? There's, you know, there's that <laughs> dynamic, but it was, it was so interesting because like, I was always kind of doing these things and sort of being, you know, I was a little, you know, off the beaten path, but I think what it taught me was this dynamic of what it is like to feel that sort of outside dynamic. And when I look throughout my life and any of the work that I, that I've done, it comes down to this aspect of like, I want people to know each other. I want them to connect. I want them to help each other. I want them to support each other. I don't want them to feel alone. I don't want them to be unheard. I mean, I even look at the work that I do now with people in the world of thought leadership. It's like, I don't want their voice to not be heard. You know, and most of the time, the only reason why somebody's voice is not heard is that the way that it's packaged is not accessible to the people who need to hear it. And even going back to the point about the fashion show, if I had just busted out in the middle of the cafeteria and done that particular dance, it could have been seen in a completely different light. But because I was the highlight of the fashion show, it made it significantly more accessible to that particular audience. It completely changed the context of that particular scenario. So the only difference between me being considered like, what the heck is wrong with this kid? And oh my God, that kid's so cool, really came down from, to, from the aspect of the way that it was being presented. You know, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on this because you often hear like, like this, these cliche sayings, like your setback is really getting you set up for mm -hmm. your, you know, your, your setup, right? Your setback yeah. is there for, to, to be to your benefit. And how do you feel about, you know, whether it's the universe or God or whoever that is controlling this whole thing? Do you feel like, Sometimes we go through the scenarios we go through in order so that we can be able to serve and execute our purpose in the way that we were meant. Cause you're, you're talking about like, because of what you went through in those years of your life, you have this empathy for people that drives you to do what you do. Like what's your perspective on all that? Yeah, my take is, yes, that those things that happen in our lives are basically giving us the tools that we're going to have later, later on. And the way that I look at it, you know, I often like to say that the keys to all the doors we need open are in other people's pockets, right? Mm. Um, so like a lot of the time when we need something, somebody else has figured that thing out and sort of solved that particular problem. But if we look sort of at every, everybody has a backstory, right? Like everybody has, has a background and there are always things in that background that are not necessarily the best of things. Each one has a different experience, which means you actually end up with a different set of tools. So in my case, I show up into the world with a completely different set of tools because of the experiences that I have. So I look at it more from the angle of if bad things happen, if challenging things happen, they're happening so that I'm, I'm going to be given tools for the future. And other people are going to have bad things happen, but they're not going to be the same bad thing. So they're going to get a different set of tools. And as we sort of go through life, we look for the people who have the tools that can help us overcome the challenges that we have, the things that we need to fix. And may, in many cases, those tools come from their own prior experience 
experience, right? Their own experience of something not necessarily working out. I've often had this conversation with folks in the coaching space where it's like, you know, when a coach is really good at solving a problem, a lot of the time when you sort of look at the background, it's a problem that they themselves have had, you know, and in some cases have like still have and are still struggling with. And there's even an argument to be made that when a coach is really effective at helping somebody solve their problem, that there's the very, very real possibility that subconsciously they still don't believe that problem can be solved. So they're coaching other people and helping them break through those barriers just to prove to themselves that that's actually, that that's actually a reality. I've heard this over and over again where you sometimes the best best platform is built from you know this itch that you personally have been trying to scratch. But I think oftentimes, uh, like again, going back into my own life, I used to think about, you know, that these challenges were there to prove that I wasn't meant to do something. You know, when I, mm-hmm. that my, my challenges were, you know, for instance, when my Hollywood gig didn't work out um, with my dance career was only proof that I guess I wasn't meant to be a dancer instead of, and that's how most people would interpret it, right? Yeah. Instead of looking at it like, okay, so it didn't work. What challenges did I face? What did they teach me? And how can, how can I, then use that to build a stronger platform. And to your point, you're not just helping yourself. You're helping many other people because there's many other people that have faced the same struggles that you have. So uh, you beat George Lucas and sell out <laughs> your, your fashion show. What happens after high school? What's going on after you exit that part of your life? I went to college uh, in the same, in in Rhode Island. So I went to Rhode Island College. So I was pretty much, I stayed at home. Like I didn't live at school. I kind of followed sort of that that particular path. And I double majored in uh, theater and secondary ed English. Okay. And uh, originally I was going to be, I was going to be childhood ed. I was going to be a kindergarten teacher like my mother uh, had been. And uh, that was sort of the original plan. But probably about a year in, I realized that I didn't really like the idea of working with the, the smaller kids. Like it didn't fit for me. And I learned that because I actually went back to my old high school and I drama coached at my old high school. So okay. while I was in college, I went back and I started helping them. And that's where that uh, I came up with the that's where I realized sort of as I kind of look back, I came up with this phrase of go where you're awesome, not where you're ordinary. Mm. And the reasoning behind that was at the time I was kind of offered two options, right? So I was offered the option to go and, you know, hand out, like spend some time handing out flyers at Trinity Rep, right? For the plays and like all of those different types of things. And I could be a volunteer, Right. But in that particular scenario, I was ordinary. I was just another guy like handing out, you know, handing out programs. But when I went back to my old high school and I was drama coaching, I was awesome to those kids. I was I was somebody who had gone past, you know, I was I was on par with these teachers who were helping them develop their plays and develop their, you know, develop their projects. So I was seen in a completely different light as a result of as a result of doing that. But it also taught me, as I worked with those kids, I was like, I want to work with high school kids. So I pretty much right after that said, okay, I'm going to switch to secondary ed English. And I double majored and I overloaded credits. I took credits during the summer 
because I would be about a year behind, you know, basically as a result of, you know, having been in sort of early childhood. And during that time, I learned a lot about, and this is something that, again, this is echoed throughout my life. When I see things that I don't uh, like, or when I've had experiences that I'm not happy with, I look at how could I create a better experience? So at the time in my college, one of the things that uh, happened was you had the, the main stage productions and then you had a smaller slate of productions called the growing stage. And the idea was that students would get to direct and there was an application process, but every year only three of those students would get chosen to direct while you would have a directing class of 20 or 30 kids, right? Who wanted to direct. So I remember very distinctly putting together what I call the evening of the arts where I had, you know, 10 scenes that I put together in the auditorium so that 10 more directors could get the chance to try and direct and get that particular opportunity. So I was always kind of putting those things together. I was always putting things together a little bit differently and, and creating things from, from high school all the way through into, into college. I was always kind of known as that person who was like starting programs. Like I was the guy who would go to the department and say, here's an idea that we have how do we get permission to do it? Who do we need to rent space from? Like, what do we need to do? And I would create those, uh, I would create those experiences. Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel like connecting with people was something that you had was kind of innate in your DNA or is it something that you learned? What, where, where do you feel like that came from? Yeah, it definitely was something I learned because while I was great at performing, I was still socially awkward. Like okay. I was still, uh, I still always had trouble with like the sort of like going up to somebody and saying hello, you know sure. what I mean? Like I was never that kid, right? Um, you could get me in front of a stage of a hundred people, a thousand people. It wouldn't matter. If I was on a stage, no problem whatsoever. I didn't care how big the stage was. I could perform in any, you know, environment, but you get me into a party with maybe 20, 30 people. And I'm the one who's standing in the corner. Sure. Right. Sure. Uh, so where that shifted for me was after I had left college. Okay. In college, I was, you know, I was putting together teams and I was still like, I was getting people together, but I was still kind of, you know, I still had that sort of like social awkward dynamic. I just had a lot of friends who would help me and, you know, and I could go and talk to authority figures, right? Um, because they were authority figures. There was already structure there, right? There was no like traditional sort of social interaction stuff happening. But when I left and I started teaching, I decided to get my master's in educational theater at NYU. And while I was getting my master's, I was also raising money for all these smaller shows uh, and there were a lot of kids from Tish who basically like they wanted to produce shows, but they didn't want to do all the logistical side of things. So I had started helping them produce. I had started being sort of the behind the scenes person and we had to raise money. And at the time, bar parties was the dynamic of how people raised money. You basically would like find a bar and get people to come and give you money for your shows. But what happened was eventually it got to a point where every theater company in the city was hosting a bar party. So it was really hard for you to raise money for your show. Sure. So I, I came up with this idea at the time to bring a bunch of theater companies together under one roof and then invite people as the fundraiser and basically be like, give us, you know, donate 10 bucks or 20 bucks to the show or whatever. 
and then you can hang out with 15, 20, 30 theater companies for one night and we'll put together tables where you can meet all the companies, get to know each other, et cetera. And what that did was it put me in an environment in which I had to host. And the thing that you learn about being a host is that when you are the host, you are not allowed to hide. <laughs> Very true. You don't Very have true. that option. So because I suddenly had to sort of take that role on of being the host, socialization became much, much easier. And I started to get more comfortable with the idea of sort of like, how do I reach out to people or how do I have conversations? And this ties directly into how I ended up getting my Broadway opportunity. Because I was at, uh, I was at an event and there were a bunch of Broadway speakers speaking at that event. And I watched their panel presentation and I knew the owner of the theater because I had produced a bunch of shows in that theater on the smaller, you know, on the smaller scale. So I'm leaving that event and I'm like, wow, you know, those producers are really amazing. And she said, yeah, you know, uh, and they're all going to be at our Christmas party. And then two days later, I get an invite to the Christmas party for that theater. And while I'm there, and I'll never forget this moment, I'm standing there. I have to get to another show and like, I've, I'm like opening a show that night. So I've got like maybe 15, 20 minutes to be at the Christmas party. And one of those producers walks in. And I have this moment and I remember distinctly the conversation I had with myself. And it was, if you don't go up to her and say hello, you might as well forget about having a producing career. Mm. And I just went up and for the first time in my entire life, I interrupted somebody else's conversation. That was horrifying to me. The sure. idea of interrupting somebody. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I saw you speaking on this panel and I just thought you had so many great things to say. I'm really interested in the world of producing. I just think it's a fascinating thing. I've been doing it on a smaller level. And she said, well, you know, what are you trying to do? And I told her a little bit about my background and I told her about the fact that I was a high school English teacher. And she said, well, what are you doing tomorrow night? And I was like, well, I'm on the wait list for another show, you know, to, to go and, you know, check out. She said, no, you're coming with me. And she invited me to a gathering of Broadway League professionals. And I met all these Broadway League people at that gathering. And all of a sudden, I had a bunch of Broadway producer contacts. And that's how I started to get to know and sort of understand, like, how Broadway worked and what it was and how I started to get into uh, that particular, you know, that particular world. And really, this all stemmed from you building a platform for everybody else, not yourself. Yes. Uh, and I find that being a very intricate piece of so many different, you know, creatives that I talked to about like how they had a passion for something and they either wanted to learn more or they wanted to, they wanted to meet more people like them or, or like you said, become a part of a circle. So instead of them creating an event or a platform for themselves, and using their, you know, using their microphone to be able to tell everybody to look at them, they just simply built a platform for everybody else to be able to use their microphone. And, you know, coincidentally, their network grows out of it. And I'm a, I'm a huge believer in that, especially what we've been yep. doing with, you know, Worldwide Dance Challenge and the platform that we've built with that. And so, so my, my question to the, you is this, is what is the key to building a successful platform for other people that mm. make them want to keep you around? Sure. The platform has to be built in the context of their success. 
So you have to think through what is a win for the people who would be part of this particular community. And I often will have this conversation uh, with people in the thought leadership space and people trying to sell services. It's not about what you do. It's what you do for the client, right? So I often will say like, give yourself an F, like ask yourself, what do I do for? Mm. So if you're looking at the platform, give yourself an F. What is this platform going to do for the people that I'm inviting? Sure. And that's a question that we don't think about because it's, it's so easy for us to think about like, well, what do I want this to be for me? Right? Like, what do I want this to do for me? Or what do I want? Right? Yep. We all want it. We all have that question. But how often do we say like, what do I want this to do for other people? What do I want this to do for an industry? Right? And, you know, if I look back at all the different things that I've created in my life, and I've, I've, I've hosted uh, my own conference for a number of years, I've created mastermind programs, like I've done a bunch of, I've created a lot of things in my life. And every single one of them has always started with this question of like, what is this going to do for the people who participate? What is this going to do for the industry? that it's going to be a part of. And when you do that, when you think in that context, you take the focus off of you, and now other people can basically execute on the vision. And I think that that's the, that's the issue, is a, a lot of the time, the problem with a lot of platforms, and you see this on the book of faces with like all the different groups that people create, those platforms often are structured around the idea of like, hey, here's my product or here's my offer. Or here's what I'm doing. And here's all my videos and, you know, all this, you know, all this stuff. Right. And here's what I'm going to sell you rather than here are tools for you to be successful. Here are ways that you all can connect with each other and support each other and solve each other's problems. So I really think at the heart, it's taking a really close look at whatever you're creating. And like I said, giving yourself an F. And saying, like, who is this for? What am I doing for these people before you, you know, get into the process of building it? And I think the question that typically will follow when, we, when this discussion happens is then where do we put ourselves into the equation? Because obviously, yeah. I think there's two sides you can be. There's people that lean too much on what does this do for me and they start there. And then there's yep. people that do a good job of understanding how they want to serve other people but they don't understand how to tie that back into yep. being able to benefit them. Not that they're doing it for the benefit of themselves, but again, yep. whether you are building a business, a nonprofit, you know, or just building straight a platform or a brand at some level, it does need to feed, you know, the engine that is feeding the, the people, right? So yep. where do you start to bring yourself into the equation and how do you start working that in? Yeah. So the way that I like to think about it, what you're describing is something I like to refer to as the giver's fix. If you are somebody who loves to give and support other people, then anytime that you give or you help that person, you are going to receive a chemical reaction. Some say it's oxytocin, some say it's dopamine, but regardless of whatever the, the chemical is, you get a rush when you give to other people. You get a rush when people come to you and say, thank you so much for all of your help and all of your support and all the things that you're doing. Like you get the rush as a result of that particular, as a, that particular experience. You do not get any chemical reaction when you are asking for things. 
There is nothing that happens. There's no good feeling that comes from asking. So just like an addict who would basically sort of like pump themselves full of a drug because it's making them feel a high, givers can fall into this category of getting that giving fix where it's like you're just pumping yourself of all that good feeling of all that oxytocin and you're never letting other people know what it is that you actually need. So what ends up happening, and this happens to a lot of people who create platforms, is they end up being connection rich and cash poor where everybody knows and loves them, but nobody knows how to pay them or send them opportunities. And the core reason for this is because they are never asking their audience for support and for help. So the way that I look at this is I look at this as like, you have to create flow within your network. So if you've created a community, you can't just spend all of the time giving to that community because how are you going to, how are you going to benefit, right? Like, how are you going to be able to support yourself? So what you want to do is you want to create flow. And the way that I think about creating flow is I call it uh, the gate model. So every day, if you want to think about it as a daily practice, every day you should open and close the gate. And this will create a much, much better flow in your community, in your own life, in your own experiences. And the idea is that the G is for give. So every day you make it a point to give without the expectation of return. You do something just to help and just to support and you never worry about sort of where it's going to go. But every single day, you make it a point to ask for something that you truly need. You educate your audience as to what it is that you are trying to accomplish and what it is that you are trying to do. And then every day you take the time and you thank people within your community and within your circle because we often forget to give thanks to people. Like it's a very, very common thing to forget. True story. Right? Yep. right? All the time. Right. We go through these experiences and, and sometimes we thank them in our head or sometimes we send them a quick email. But like how often does somebody write to you and say, like, that changed my life or that was super helpful or I really appreciate this. And they tell you like why what you did and what it meant. Right. So, so rare. And then the final one is experiment. All of the ways that you give, all the ways that you ask, all the ways that you think. There's so many variables in, ter in terms of how you could do it. You could give by making an introduction. You could give by, you know, offering to put somebody on a podcast. You could give by giving advice. You can ask in so many different ways for so many different types of things. You don't necessarily need to only ask for clients or money. You can ask, does anybody know about a platform? You can ask for advice. You can ask for uh, ideas, right? There's so many different ways to, you know, look at that. And the same with thanking. You can say thank you or you can send somebody something right? You can shout them out on social media in some capacity, you know, and these are all the experiments that we can do. So if you create that, if every day you open and close the gate, then what's going to happen is you're going to start to see patterns in your interactions and you're going to start to figure out, you're going to learn so much about your audience. So if you're constantly doing that and you're asking and you're giving and you're thanking, you're going to start to see like, who are these people and how are they reacting? And you're going to start to figure out which of these people really are your supporters. Like which of these people really come to the fore for you and which of these people don't really care. And that's a very important piece of this. It's like, if you don't know who is supporting you, then you don't know where to focus and you're not going to learn who's supporting you unless you ask for things, unless you let people know, like, this is what I could use help with. 
And I'll say, you know, the best phrase that you can ask, if you want to, if you want to get away from, I call it asking anxiety, where it's like, we're kind of afraid to ask, right? Yeah, there's a lot of people that are afraid to ask for anything. They don't want to sell nothing. They don't want to ask. They're really good at giving, but telling them to ask in return that they freeze up. Yep, exactly. And the reason for that is that we've been taught to ask wrong our entire lives. We've always been taught to ask directly. We've Mm -hmm. always been taught, like, if you don't ask, you don't get, and you just got to say to somebody, will you sponsor me? Will you do this? Will you do that? Et cetera. But the problem is, if I've just met you, I don't trust you, right? Like, I don't trust you yet. We, we don't have a relationship yet. So if you ask me for something directly, my primitive brain is going to the wild and it's, I'm going back to the past and I'm thinking like, you're trying to steal my food and you're feeling the same thing. We're both anxiety ridden creatures when we're asking directly if there is no relationship established. But interestingly enough, if we go up a level to what I like to refer to as the indirect ask, and this is how I raised money, right, on Broadway, The indirect ask is when you say to somebody, you know, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. Do you have any ideas? I would love to hear your thoughts on how I might be able to accomplish this. I would love to hear your thoughts on how I might be able to make this thing happen. And when you do that, when you do the indirect ask, you take the brain from fight or flight up to the level of creativity because you can't stay in fight or flight and think at the same time right? So it has to go up to the level of creativity. And the thing is, you limit the things you get in life when you limit other people's creativity. So if you don't allow people to be creative in solving your problem, then it's only ever going to be a yes or a no. But if you say, do you have any ideas? Most people are going to give you ideas because very, very few people are like, oh no, I don't have any ideas. Like that does not, you know, happen. And then you can take it up in an even higher level and you can make it a mutually beneficial ask where you take the time to outline how is it that this person would also benefit from what I'm asking for and you paint that picture for them. And you say, you know, uh, sponsorships, for example, rather than saying like, here's my deck, will you sponsor us? You do the research and you say, it looks like this is your audience and it looks like when this audience buys this product, it, their lifetime value is, for you is $5,000 a head. I've got an audience of 500 people who fit that particular profile and I'm doing a sponsorship for a thousand dollars. You've already done the math. You've already crafted it all in your head. And then the final piece, and this is the one that completely changes people's lives. And this is the thing I tell people all the time. And it is the extraordinary ask. And the extraordinary ask is when you stop thinking about, oh, well, I don't know if they'll ever answer. I don't know if that person would ever, you know, uh, respond to me and all those different types of things. And you just take the Hail Mary shots. You reach out to those really, really high level people that you're interested in connecting with, that you're interested in having a conversation with. And here's the thing, 90% of the time, those high level people only ever get direct asks Mm -hmm. because people believe that that person is going to solve their problem for them, right? So if you're the person who comes up with an indirect or a mutually beneficial ask to that individual, you're already standing out from a large number of people and you're standing out from all the people who had that same thought of like, hey, well, I, I'm not really sure if I should ever ask this person, right? Uh, I'm not really sure if I, you know, if, if I should talk to them or they're probably too busy or any of those different types of things. Right. And that ties back to when you were talking about sort of this, uh, going back to the beginning where we were talking about this aspect of like, you try something and it falls flat 
and then you know the message can sometimes be well maybe i'm not meant to do this yep. it comes down to what i refer to and this helps with asking with asking what you always want to do is you want to think about the tennis novice and the tennis pro the tennis novice misses a shot and the game is over in many cases yep. because now the tennis novice thinks that they're not that good they think that they're still a beginner they they get inside their own head and they lose the game the tennis pro misses a shot and says i missed a shot what can i learn right they don't see failure they only see new information and they're always kind of looking you know and saying like okay what can i learn from this experience and even if they lose the game they know that they're learning things to kind of move forward and the thing is the tennis novice is basically a slave to the product they're concerned about the product the tennis pro is a student of the process and if you want to get better at asking you just need to stop worrying about the product and be a student of the process. So every time you ask or every time you reach out to somebody and you don't get a response or you get a response that is not good or you get a response where somebody insults you or whatever the scenario is, it's not failure, it's new information. So you look at that and you say, okay, what can I learn you know, from this particular experience? And going back to what we were talking about with the gate strategy, right? If you are constantly asking on a regular basis and you're testing these different ways of asking, you're going to learn so much about your own process. You're going to start to get much, much better at asking for things. You're going to get, start to get much, much better at connecting with people and supporting people as a result of doing this, uh, as a result of doing this kind of work. Now, this framework that you talk about, obviously, uh, you know, you being known as kind of the referral king and, and connection king is this the formula that you at first unconsciously were using to build this network? And so would you say that, you know, it started from building a platform for other people and just kind of exploded from there? Yeah, it definitely started from building a platform for other people. Um, but there was a phase. So in the theater world, uh, especially in educational theater, there's the concept that if you do a simulation, you can learn a lot. And basically, if you take a scenario and you basically have people act out that scenario, in many cases, they act as if they would act in real life yeah. uh, for the most part. So what I did when I wanted to study this and I wanted to sort of understand it better was I hosted workshops where I would simulate networking experiences. So I did workshops where I'd have people act out one-on-one meetings, job interviews, and cocktail parties. And I would start to identify archetypes, like how do people interact at a, uh, at a cocktail party. I would start to notice patterns in terms of like when people are asking for things and not asking for things. And when I looked back at my own process, at my own work, I noticed patterns. And patterns are always the precursor for frameworks. So these ideas and these concepts, I solidified after having either seen other people have success or experience with them or having success myself with them and then looking at all the other things that have been taught out there around these ideas and around these concepts and going back to what i was talking about before i would read a book or i would sort of look at a concept and then i'd say what is the deeper idea behind this concept uh so for example reciprocity is a much much deeper concept than most people give it credit for so most of the time when we think about reciprocity we think in the context of if I give you something, you're going to want to give something to me. And that's sort of like the main principle. Yep. But what I've learned in my own experience 
is that everybody has what I like to refer to as a reciprocity impulse and a reciprocity timeline. And a reciprocity impulse has to do with how quickly do you give back when you are being given to. So if somebody gives you something, do you give something back right away? And that is directly reflected by your past. Because if in your past, you always got everything you ever asked for, then you're likely to just kind of expect that life will continue that way. And that when people give you things, that's just the way life works. Conversely, if you have struggled or had challenges, and then there were people who jumped in when you were in the trenches, and they saved you or they helped you in some particular capacity, then you have a much, much stronger reciprocity impulse. If somebody gives to you, you feel like you have to give back right away because you've had this experience of, of really feeling like you have to show your gratitude. You have to prove to people that you're grateful for whatever came through. And reciprocity is sort of that model, right? And then in addition, there's the idea of a reciprocity timeline. So if you're the type of person who's had a good experience with people all your life where they give you something, you give something back and it's always been a great flow, your timeline may be very, very short. And you may mm -hmm. be like, okay, they gave to me, I'm gonna give it back to them. Right. But if you've been burned multiple times by other people, when you've given something and then they've come back and they've asked you for something really big and you were like, why did you do that? And you're really wary of people, then your reciprocity timeline may be a lot longer. You may basically wait two or three months to see like, can I, do I trust this person before you give back? Longer vetting process support. almost. Exactly. So I'm really curious, when was that, when was that moment for you where you realized that this connection thing, this, this being referable, because I, I think that's kind of goes hand in hand, right? This, this, yep. if you're going to be referable, if you want to build a brand that is, is constantly being referred to or referred, you have to be able to connect with people because yeah. I think this whole concept of, you know, and, and coming from the sales world too, in my background, you know, I think people are often short-sighted and they're looking at this transaction and just how do I sell this next transaction? Not putting into context, you could either sell once or you could make this, this process be really valuable and one, one sale could turn into a lifelong customer. So I, I, think, I think the connection piece is often missed. And so I'm curious, when, when did you realize that this connection thing was really the key to helping you get to where you wanted to go, where being the guy that was referred all the time was the key for you? Yeah, I think it, uh, it probably happened uh, when I started, uh, when I did my conference for the first time. I did a conference uh, for connectors called ConnectorCon, where I brought connectors together from lots of different industries. And uh, at the time, I was uh, working in an educational technology startup. So I was actually doing uh, business development for educational technology startup. And uh, I was kind of in two worlds at that time, right? So I was doing this technology work. Uh, and then I had this conference. And when I did the conference, at the very beginning, I shared one of my frameworks for how people can connect with each other. And I sort of showed them, like, this is how you can not worry about who you're going up to today was basically the way I broke it down. So I made it so that everybody, when they uh, applied for the conference, they filled out a form that told us what they needed uh, and what they could use help with. 
Um, and on their name tags, they had their name and what they needed, but no job title. So nice. there was like none that. of that like hierarchy, yeah. right, happening. So people would just connect and they would just sort of get to know each other. And at the end of that conference, I had a number of people come up to me and say, nobody is teaching this the way that you're teaching this. Nobody is creating this kind of space. So you need to keep doing this work. Uh, and a number of people said some iteration of that. And I was working in, you know, I was working in an educational technology startup. There were, you know, there were certainly opportunities there. Uh, but when that was said, I left that, I left that career. I left that, you know, I left that world. I could have stayed in the startup world if I wanted to. I could, you know, that, that company could have gone on and, you know, done more things. I was, uh, I was moving into like this business development position. I was probably going to be doing a lot of sales. Like a lot of things could have happened, but I had this realization that digging into this stuff, creating this material, building a business around this was more important uh, than, you know, selling software. Like, and that's what I realized. And I just, I left and I said, you know what, that's not the, you know, this is not the world for me. I'm going to focus, I'm going to focus on this. Uh, and that's where I started to realize like, you know, I get all these people to come to these things and not everybody can, you know, I realized like I get all these introductions and not everybody can, you know, or not everybody is ending up in all of these rooms. So I was like, there are things here that I'm doing and I'm a teacher. So like, what can I teach? Like, how can I help people understand all of the things that are going on behind the scenes? You know, because most of the time when we see, and this is a big thing in the press, right? I call this the hockey stick versus the stepladder. So in the press, we, we see the hockey stick. We see the person who is like sleeping on their parents' couch cushions, <laughs> you know, uh, scrounging yep. for change. And then they discover this one thing and all of a sudden they're a millionaire, you know, yep. riding on a yacht, right? Yep. yep. But behind the scenes of that is this stepladder where they made all of these, they built all of these different relationships. They got all of these different introductions. All these things happened on the relationship building side behind the scenes that nobody knew about, that nobody was aware of. Because you can't write about that in an article. It just, it would take too long. Yeah, yeah. To cover true. it, right? Because relationships, as you know, is a long game. And I was I was on another interview where we talked about the fact that we talk all the time about customer retention, right? About the idea of like keeping your customers. But how often do we talk about relationship retention? Like most of the time we're thinking about relationship expansion. We're like, how do I meet more people? Right. Rather than saying, like, who have I not touched base with? And how can I deepen the relationships with the people that I know are my advocates that I know are going to support me or that I'm just really like impressed by. And I'm like, I want to know more. I want to learn more about these people. I want to spend more time with these people yep. and relationship retention is, is what will make you successful because if you build really deep relationships with people, those people are going to spend the time getting to know you, getting to understand you, and you're going to get the time to really understand them. And the way that you're going to help each other is going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger because of how close you're getting and because of the things that you're learning and because of the things that you're developing. So taking the time to make sure like you can have tons of acquaintances, but like, do you have friends? And that's a very important <laughs> question. That's a great question. Yeah. Such an important question. And if you don't have friends, it's time to have friends. 
It's time to have a group of people around you that support you because everything that happens in your life, there's going to be a handful of people that you have a close relationship with who are going to be able to be there for you when those things are, are when those things are not working, right? When the chips are down, you're going to need the relationships that are not influenced by how popular you are or by how much success you've had or any of those different types of things. You're going to need the relationships that people check in on you when you're not famous, yep. when you're not the one that everybody wants to, you know, wants to know. And I learned, I learned very, I learned very, very quickly who my true friends were, especially when you're a connector, when you're a connector, everybody's your friend. That's right. That's right. right. Like everybody wants to be your buddy when you're a connector because you're connecting people, right? You're, so you're, you're making opportunities happen. But I learned very, very quickly who my true friends were and who the people who really support me were when I had my low moments, right? When I had my instances of not being able to run my business in the way that I needed to run it. You know, I had uh, my daughter, uh, my very first daughter, when she was born, uh, she was born not breathing. So we had five weeks in the NICU um, and that was my life. So all my clients went away, everything went away, you know? And during that time, I sent out an email to a number of my friends and people who I knew in the, you know, in the sort of, business world and sort of all those different types of things, just giving them an update on like, this is what's going on. And I watched who were the people who came back and, yeah. and were supportive and helped. And that's how I knew, like, these are my friends. Yep. And once I got to the other side of that, I, you know, those people I keep, like, I keep an eye out for. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, especially right now. Like we're in the middle of this pandemic. You got people who have completely lost their jobs and all these different types of things. This is the time to really pay attention to what your friends are going through and make sure that you are there for them and support them because this is the time that they're going to remember. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot in the idea of referability is the concept of memory. And memory is influenced by our emotions. So in our deepest emotional states we remember things in a much much more crystal clear kind of way so the people in your life who you are supporting right now if they're going through something really really hard they're going to remember you on the other side of this far more because they're in that heightened emotional state and that's such an important uh, such an important piece of the puzzle yeah absolutely absolutely yeah this whole connecting thing is such an important part of the game that i just don't feel is really focused on. I I feel like there's a lot of people that'll do it, you know, subconsciously, but they don't do it consciously. And, and uh, there has to be some intent in there. There has to be, you know, and again, the intent is one thing, like as far as making sure that you're intentional with connecting, but also the intent behind your intention is also important. And and are we there to serve other people? Now, Michael, you, you have a, a framework that you uh, are, that is available for people to learn some of these things that you were talking about. So where can people find that framework so that they can kind of sharpen up their own connection skills? Yeah. So uh, interestingly enough, there's, uh, I've created two different things. So there's, uh, if you go to the, uh, the small pond enterprises website, um, smallpondenterprises.com, there is a PDF called Hang With Your Heroes uh, that basically breaks down a lot of this like 
how do you think about reaching out to others? How do you think about curating those relationships? And there's a whole handbook that sort of will help you on that end. Um, but in addition, I'm also going to send you a link for your listeners to something I call the referability rater. And what this does is it'll ask you a series of questions to see how referable your brand is. So mm -hmm. you can start to look at like, what am I doing to make sure that other people are talking about my ideas and sort of putting, uh, you know, putting these concepts uh, out into the world. Yeah. And we'll make sure we link all of that in the show notes so people can find that very easily. But uh, man, you just packed in so much good information. I think this is such a, a valuable um, episode and I, I'm, I'm excited because I think it's one that people can go in and listen to over and over again and just pull uh, out so much tactical uh, and practical advice that they can implement today and start seeing a return on their uh, attention is what I like to call it. But, uh, but again, Michael, I just appreciate it so much for you joining us on the podcast. It was a great conversation. And, uh, and, and I think it's going to be something that, uh, that'll bless a lot of people that, that listen. So I want to say thank you. Awesome. I, again, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was an absolute blast and a really fantastic interview. Thank you for listening to another episode of the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. Here, we turn your passion into profit. Follow us on Facebook and stay tuned for another episode of the My Creative District podcast.